to know Welcome your input. We gotta solve this. What it makes gross make food gross? Is it flavor or texture? Let's get to the bottom of it. So if you think flavor is the primary thing, the dominant force that makes the food that's gross to you gross, raise your hand. Flavor. A lot of flavor people, a lot of flavor people, hands down. If you think it's texture, hands in the air now. Uh, pretty even, honestly. Anybody have like a grossest flavor they've ever had? What? Enchiladas. What? The whole thing? Enchiladas are delicious. Like in a specific kind of like cheese or chicken or beef? Which ones? Just all of them. You don't want? Tamale. What? That's crazy. I mean, we love you and we accept you, but you're blowing my mind right now. What else? What's like a gross flavor? What you got? Strawberries? Are you allergic or you just think they're gross? Wow. We're learning a lot about each other. I love it. We're accepting each other. What do you think? Tomatoes? And it's a flavor thing for you? It's a texture thing. Tomatoes do have kind of a gross texture. I love them. What, any other gross flavors? I think Ryan was trying to shout out a gross flavor. White beans and <laughs> Ryan, <laughs> let me give some context for that. Ryan and I went out for ramen yesterday in uh, Little Tokyo. It was so good. And we we're like, we got to get some mochi afterwards because we thought mochi was always ice cream wrapped in mochi. And we went to this little mochi shop that was just like that doughy rice stuff. And like half of the mochi we got had beans in the middle. And like power to you if that's your thing. But we, we were not fond of the bean feeling in the mochi. What about texture? What's like a texture that really like rattles your cage? Like, Wah. I heard tomatoes, enchiladas again. It's the flavor and the texture. So if we're going out to a meal, we should never have enchiladas or tamales. Cheese? Just it like, like shredded cheese, melted cheese, any cheese. We don't like it. Gosh, I love cheese. What about over here? What? Cottage cheese? I mean, fair. I like cottage cheese, but it is kind of lumpy and, and creamy. Any, what do you got? Salad? Just wet leaves. I, 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 honestly, I kind of get that. No flavor? There's some flavor. Okay, there's one final thing I want to do before we dive in on the message today. And it's something that if you were at camp with us, we did in one of our church times, and it was gross and thrilling, and I loved it. Um, so I'm sorry if this freaks you out and if you don't like it. But um, on the count of three, I want anybody who can like crack their knuckles or neck or whatever, we're all going to do it together. So this is your warning if you hate it, uh, to plug your ears, and I'm sorry. Um, but this is just intoxicatingly fun to me. So here we go. On three, crack whatever you can crack. Ready? One, oh my gosh, you got your neck ready. Oh. <laughs> I can't crack my neck, so that freaks me out. Also, sometimes I fall down the rabbit hole and watch like chiropractor videos online. It's like that and Dr. Pimple Popper. It goes crazy. Anywho, so <laughs> okay, on three, crack what you can crack. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, <laughs> ooh, ooh. That, was, that was interesting. I feel that. I feel like we all just bonded. We were friends, now we're family. Um, anyways, it's so good to be with you. Um, I love this time of year. It's kind of, we're like launching into a new year. Kind of New Year's is in the rear view. We had winter camp. We're kind of like, it's crazy because winter starts like mid to late December, but it feels like New Year's is behind us, so winter must be over at springtime. Um, but like we're in the thick of winter, uh, but everything's kind of new. Uh, maybe you made resolutions. Maybe you went to camp. One of the big things we talk about here in HSM is this concept of next steps, right? If you've been around with us before, you're probably familiar. And that's actually something that we use all over Calvary um, because it's true. Um, the reality is, is that when you're on a journey, as we are uh, in a journey of faith, 
journeys take steps, right? It's not like you snap and you're finally at the end and it's like, I have evolved past any growth. I am complete and perfect, lacking nothing. Like that's not us at this point. Like we're in a journey and we have steps that we have to take, right? Like sometimes you have to take steps of courage. Sometimes you have to take steps of sacrifice. Sometimes you just have to take steps of curiosity, all of that. Um, and it's a big value that we have here. And the reality is everybody has next steps. So even if, if, if this is your very first day ever walking into a church, that was your next step. You took a big step. It's like, uh, maybe I'm curious about faith. Maybe I've been around people um, who have said that like a relationship with God has been powerful in their life. And I'm curious and maybe I just want to be open and find out for myself. And so like showing up to church today, like maybe you're taking that next step. Um, and maybe you're a little further in the journey and like maybe, maybe even like at camp, we did next step cards, right? And like, if you were at camp, you likely filled out a next step card and we had possibilities of what your next step could be. And it's different for everybody. And so maybe like some of us, we chose that our next step was like, if we're going to get real, that our next step was like, I'm going to stop hating God and I'm going to give him a fair shot to introduce himself to me. Like maybe that's your next step or maybe your next step in your journey is forgiveness. Maybe you need to forgive somebody who hurts you and it's like, like, that's a tough step, but I know it will bless my life. I know it's my path to growth and I need to take that step, but I need to do the hard work of forgiving someone who hurt me. Or maybe for you, your next step was I need to, or is, I need to end an unhealthy relationship. There's a person in my life that just doesn't want what's best for me, doesn't treat me well. I keep coming back to the same empty well, hoping it'll fill me up and it doesn't. And sometimes we just need to end unhealthy relationships. Um, maybe your next step is like, I'm going to start reading the Bible, right? Like maybe uh, you've heard a lot about the Bible or maybe, uh, maybe you go to a school where it's a Christian school and it's like Bible is, equals homework. And you're like, ah, I don't enjoy the Bible because it's an assignment, right? And it's like, maybe you need to explore the Bible, not as on the syllabus, but like, how does God want to meet me? Uh, or maybe you're in that place where you're investigating Jesus. And it's like, I want to know who he is. I want to know what he's about. Like, I'm going to start reading the Bible. Maybe your next step is like, I want to become a person who prays. Maybe that's just never been a part of it. Or maybe it's like, you've grown up in a family or a context where prayer just isn't a thing. Or maybe it's like, we pray before the meals. Um, and that's about the extent of it. Or it's like, we pray on Christmas. Or maybe you're like, terrified that someone's going to ask you to pray in a group because it's like, I don't do this in my personal life. Or like, is this a speech that I give, but direct it to God, right? Like, maybe your next step is like, I want to figure out what it means for me to be in conversation with my maker. Like, I want to talk to God. I want to become a person who prays. Like, maybe for you, the next step is join a small group right? Like maybe it's, I need to get in community. I've been isolating myself um, either uh, by choice or by just circumstances in my life. And I need to get in community. I need people who are going to support me, who are going to call me higher, who are going to love me well. Like maybe small group is your next step, or maybe your next step is like, I need to be of service. Like my whole life is aimed at me and I need to get outside of me. Like I just like, I'll acknowledge this. I'm never unhappier in my life than when all of my attention is on me. And it seems like it'll be the opposite, right? It's like, it seems like I need to get all the focus on like how I'm going to navigate life or what other people think about me or all of that. It seems like that would be the path to joy. But the reality is when all of my attention is directed inward, that's when I'm miserable and depressed and anxious. And it's like, maybe your next step is I need to become a person of service and I need to get my eyes off of me and onto other people to serve. And maybe that's your next step. And some of you, maybe even you're coming back tonight and your next step is I'm going to be baptized, right? It's a beautiful thing that Jesus has invited us to do, to be baptized. It's this symbolic gesture of this miracle that's already happened in our heart that says like the old me is dead 
um, and God's created new life in me, right? Like my old sins are washed away. And each time that I fall short, he will continue to wash those sins away like they never happened. Uh, and I come fresh and new. His mercies are new every day. And I'm saying publicly, I'm taken. I belong to Jesus. Like that's baptism. And maybe that's your next step. Maybe you've already signed up for it. Or maybe you're sitting in the room and you're like, oh, there's baptisms tonight. I've been knowing that's my next step. And I need to talk to someone and get baptized. Or maybe your next step is or was, I need to give Jesus my whole heart. Like I'm in. I've been evaluating who he is. I've been exploring for myself. I've been counting the cost and I want what he has to offer. Um, and I'm going to follow Jesus with my whole heart, right? And the reality is that we all have next steps, but the question is like, how do we step into those next steps? Like, how do we stay the course? Like when you've made a decision, like when you've resolved of like, I know where I need to move. I know what I need to do. I know what I need to remove from my life or what I need to add to my life. Or I know the thing that I need to put into practice. Like, how do we stay the course, right? Because often Oftentimes we start and we've got like enthusiasm kind of as like the fuel in our tank, right? It's like, oh, this is exciting. This is a new journey. This is a thing that I'm going to do. Um, and like just the excitement of a new decision, just kind of the momentum, kind of just like the intrinsic motivation of it, like of, us, of it propels you forward, right? It's like, oh, this is like an exciting new thing. I'm going to start going to my small group. And it's like fun and exciting because the people are new and you've never had a setting like that. And people are praying for you um, and you're meeting the new people. But then after a while, it starts to be like, okay, well, it kind of follows the same structure and I, like, I know the people already and I could just read the Bible by myself um, or maybe like they pushed back on an opinion that I had and like what I really need is people to push back but what I don't like is when people push back and you start to lose that momentum and it's like maybe small group's not for me. Or maybe it's, I need to walk in forgiveness, right? And you have this moment where you're like, you know what? I'm going to cancel that person's debt to me. And whether or not that means that we reconcile, I'm not going to hold the past against them anymore. I'm not going to continue to let it make me angry or hurt or frustrated. And I'm not going to like bully myself and bully them with the memories of the past. I'm going to let it go. And it's like, maybe you stay the course, but then that person gets in, you, in front of you and suddenly you start remembering and you start getting angry again and you start wanting to bring back these old things and weaponize them against that person. And it's like, how do we stay the course when the enthusiasm isn't propelling us anymore? Like, how do we stay the course? How do we discipline? And really, ultimately, like, how do I know what is God's best for me? What his plan is? What his best is for me? Like, how do we do that relationship? Like, how do we actually walk forward into newness? Like, what does that look like for us? And so today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at a chunk of scripture. It's a small chunk of scripture from the book of Romans. And if you haven't spent a ton of time in the Bible, um, it's awesome that you're here. And it's awesome that you get to hear from Romans today. And so Romans is a letter written by a dude named Paul. Now, Paul's name was not always Paul. Paul used to be Saul. And there's this thing that happens in the Bible often when someone has this powerful encounter with God that they are transformed in the moment and then continue to be transformed the rest of their life. And this is true for us today as well. But when someone encounters God in a profound way in scripture, oftentimes their name changes, like their identity changes. The old is gone and something new is in its place. And so Paul used to be this guy, Saul. And here was Saul's whole thing. Saul was <coughs> this guy. This is really nice to have this baptismal. I kind of want this here all the time. Uh, Saul was this guy who kind of was... Um, Everything that you would think of when you think about um, the kind of person of faith um, who thinks that they're all that, 
right? The kind of person who it's like, they're goody two shoes. They follow all the rules. They like, if you really could like pop the hood on their heart and see what was in there, they probably think they're better than everybody, right? Like they, they're judgmental. Like it's all about like me versus them. It's a constant comparison. And here's the whole thing with Saul. Saul was um, this religious figure um, in the Jewish tradition. And his whole thing was the Jewish law is the way to go. And he hated the concept of grace. He hated the idea that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah and that people's sins could be wiped clean. He found it very threatening, right? That the power structures of the system of religion were threatened, um, that he hated Christianity and hated Christians so much that he devoted his life to the pursuit of hunting down, like tracking Christians um, and having them executed to try to wipe this movement of the gospel from the face of the earth. That was Saul. He was like, I hate this movement of Christianity. I think it's profoundly bad and threatening to my way of life. Um, and it's better that we can keep people in a rigid sense of the word. And so one day he's on his way to do his business as usual. And a frustrating thing for him happens is that he actually meets the risen Jesus, right? Like Jesus shows up in the path in front of him, resurrected, glorious, holy, blinding light. Saul is on a horse. It knocks him off of his horse at such a profound moment. It actually strikes him blind. He cannot see anymore. And he hears the voice of Jesus and Jesus speaks to him. And he's like, I am who I say I am. Like, why are you persecuting me? Like, I love you. I have plans for you. And I want to use you. I want you to be a part of this movement. And it pivots his whole life. Like his life transforms. He becomes this new creation. Um, and so the rest of his life is devoted to this pursuit of getting the gospel to people who don't know it, to people from his faith and people outside of his faith to say, hey, God has come to us in the flesh and he loves us. And anything that we've done, any way that we fall short actually is not a disqualifying act from his love and from relationship with him because he's settled the score for us. Like he paid the debt so that we could be in relationship with him. It's not a meritocracy, right? Like it's not like the best man wins, like top of the king of the hill sort of a thing. It's like everybody has access to God because he, he is love and he does love each of you. And that's Paul's life. And so if you crack open your Bible and go past the halfway point into like the latter chunk of the Bible, and in fact, probably a little further, you'll find the New Testament. And the reality is a majority of the texts from the New Testament are letters written from Paul to the early churches, right? And so the one that we're looking at today is Paul writing to the believers in Rome, now, here's the thing about people raised who had lived in the Roman Empire. Rome had very specific values. And I want you to hear these values and think to yourself, ask yourself the internal question, like, do, these, do I connect to these values? Does this sound a, at least a little bit like the culture that I've been raised in, like the world that I live in right now? Here's the first thing that Rome valued greatly. Rome valued physical beauty perfection and athleticism, right? Like the way people looked aesthetically, uh, physical beauty, strength, um, like having the right like curve to the body, having like a chiseled physique, right? Like you look at all of the Roman art and everybody's naked, right? And it's like, they were a huge like athletics culture and they like, they idolized like the idea of the perfect body, of the athletic pursuit, of athletic achievement and physical beauty in the way that it was what they fixed their eyes on daily. And there was a pressure to pursue it on an individual level. That what, what was valuable and what made you valuable to the people around you was attaining as much physical perfection, as much beauty, as much as athleticism as you could. That's part of the context of the people of Rome. Sound familiar? <laughs> a little bit. Um, 
The next thing that the Roman Empire greatly valued was intellectual achievement. It was intelligent, it was, it was intelligence, it was intellectual pursuit, it was philosophy, it was new ideas, it was discovery, it was inventions. They had this huge emphasis on it. You look at all of the scholars and philosophers and a huge chunk of them from history come from Rome. There was this huge pressure of like, be an intellect, think with your brain, like educate yourself, read, write, like train in education, all of that, accumulate as much knowledge as you can. And if you're smart, uh, if you have an intellect, if you're an inventor or a brain, that makes you valuable to the people around you. That is what makes you worthy of being a part of society. Again, sound familiar? A little bit. Um, and then the third thing that Rome really valued was this idea of conquest, of expansion and growth, of like as much power and influence as you can accumulate, as the empire could accumulate and as the individual could accumulate. That is what made you valuable in society. That's what made you worth anything. It was this ability to gather, to collect, to overtake, to accumulate, um, whether that be goods, whether that be status, whether that be influence, that was a huge part of the Roman culture. Again, does this sound <laughs> remotely familiar to all of us today? There are a lot of parallels. And so Paul is is writing to the church, the believers in Rome who have lived their lives in this culture, who have been bombarded from day one of those, these are the things that make you worth anything to anybody, of being hot, of being athletic, of being smart or an academic achiever, of having status or acclaim uh, or um, a lot of stuff. Um, those are the people that he's talking to. Um, and Paul is talking to the believers who God has met them in their life, has pivoted things on a dime, has drastically changed their life. And he's saying, how then do we continue to seek after the things of God? How then do we continue to walk in newness when this is the narrative going around us in culture? Uh, and so the first thing that I want us to do is I want us to jump into Romans in chapter 12, um, starting in verse one. So if you have a paper Bible, if you're like living analog in a digital world, that's cool and let's do it. Uh, or if you have a digital Bible or if you've never had a Bible yourself, if, if faith is new to you and you want one, you can down, you can go to the app store and write Bible. And the first thing that comes down is the Bible app. Um, and you have a Bible with almost every translation you could ever want accessible to you totally free. Um, and then also we will throw the scripture on the screen. And so Romans 12, chapter one starts, or Romans 12, verse one starts here. It says this, therefore, and now uh, maybe you've heard this before. Uh, maybe you've taken an English class or been in some sort of a Bible study. Um, but there's an important question that you have to ask whenever you find the word therefore in God's word. And the, does anybody know what the question is? Bingo, Colton got it. What is the therefore? Therefore, right? Like if we're saying therefore, it's, say, it's concluding the thought, right? It's after an idea. Um, and so in chapter 11, and I'm, I'm not going to put this on the screen, but Paul is talking to the church about the glory of God's mercies, uh, about salvation, about the treasure that we have in Jesus. And one of the things that he concludes with in chapter 11, he says this, he says, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Right, like when you encounter God, when you experience salvation, again, you've gone from death to life, from darkness to light, um, and that's not something that changes. That's not something that be, can be taken away from you. That's not something that like, okay, you have a blank slate now, but you sinned again, and so like, never mind, like it's all back in your account, you're in debt again. That's not how it works, right? Like salvation has nothing to do with your achievement, 
right? It has nothing to do with behavior modification. It has nothing to do with anything other than I, I know Jesus, I'm in relationship with him, and his grace is sufficient for me, right? Uh, elsewhere in Romans, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is a salvation for you. It says that you will be saved. It has nothing to do with how you achieve in life. And so he's saying, therefore, um, pointing back to the gospel, to the beauty of God's mercies, he says, therefore, in light of that, like hold that in your mind for what I'm about to say next, because I am going to talk about some of how we live our lives. So don't forget the mercy, like, right? Sometimes when we talk about like, how then should we live? We go back into this brain of like, oh no, my salvation's at stake, right? And it's like, that's a misunderstanding of the heart of God, right? Like if you're in relationship with Jesus, if you confess that he is Lord and you believe in the resurrection, like that is salvation. The rest is for your good, for your blessing, that you wouldn't be robbed of the joy of the life that God has for you, that you wouldn't continue to hurt yourself or hurt the people around you, right? So Paul's saying, therefore, like hold that in your brain, don't lose sight of the gospel, but he's saying this, therefore, I urge you, right? Like you don't urge someone something that's not important. It's not like, I urge you to, I don't know, watch Netflix tonight. It's of the utmost importance, Amory. All, all hope is lost if you don't, right? Like you don't urge someone something that's not mission critical. So Paul says, therefore, in view of the gospel, I urge you, brothers and sisters, so he's talking to believers, in view of God's mercy, right? Like keep God's mercy in front of you. And here's the instruction that he's going to give. He says, therefore, I urge you, this is important, brothers and sisters, like we're all part of the family, we love each other, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. And now here's the thing um, that you need to remember that you keep in mind about the sacrificial system is that in uh, the ancient world, in the sacrificial system, how you would atone for sin is there had to be bloodshed. There had to be death. Like you had to have death to have life. And that's kind of like a rule of the world post-fall. Like you have to kill something and eat it in order to keep your body moving, right? Whether that be an animal or a fruit, right? Like you take an apple from a tree, it is disconnected from the source of life and you consume it. And the apple that experiences death and you can experience life, right? Same with an animal, right? Like if you had, anyone have steak over the weekend? Anyone have like delicious steak or ground beef, right? Like where does steak come from? Cows. Brilliant. A cow had to die so that I could eat beef, right? Like it's kind of like a rule of the world around us. And it's true um, in the ceremonial sense as well of like to atone for your sin, you had to take an animal sacrifice and kill it. And that's what we think about when in sacrifices is a killing sacrifice. But Paul is not talking about a killing sacrifice. He says, be a living sacrifice. And so what does that mean for us? What does it look like for us to be a living sacrifice? Because a, a, a killing sacrifice in its most grim sense of the word is like, let's all kill ourselves. And that's not at all what the scripture is saying. Um, so if anyone starts talking to you about that, be like, that's not the gospel. I'm out of here. Um, but the other way that we would think about it is, okay, so then does that mean that all of what makes me me, right? Like not just excluding the things that are destructive in my life, but does that mean like my passions, my joys, my skills? Like, do I have to cut those off and become a different person entirely? 
right? Like if before I encounter Jesus, my greatest joy is music and I love to play the piano, does that then mean that I have to sacrifice that because I, the old me is dead and I'm a new creation and now I'm just a person who like prays 24 seven, right? Like do I just need to commit myself to like, I'm just gonna be in the prayer group and I'm not gonna be, I'm gonna fight everything that makes me me. Or if, if you pre-Jesus were an athlete and the thing that you love more than anything is soccer um, and it's like, okay, well then does that mean that this thing, this part of me has to go um, to make room for Jesus? Now, perhaps sometimes our lives do have to reconfigure. Sometimes something's not good for us or it's taken too much of a spot in our, in our heart where it's the God that we worship and God's going to be like, no, that's bad for you actually because idols will break your heart. Right, like if you expect soccer to be your God and give you everything that you need in life, or if you expect music, or if you expect uh, being social, or whatever that would be, if you are putting the pressure on that thing to give you everything that you need and fill every empty space in your heart, it cannot do that. It wasn't designed to do it, and it will break your heart. So we got to get it in its right place, right? Like sometimes things will reconfigure, but what it looks like to be a living sacrifice is to say, no, actually, like God wants me to still be me. He made me me, but what He wants me to do is he wants me to take all of what makes me me, all of my passion, all of my potential, all of my enthusiasm, all of what brings me delight, and put it in service of him, to take it and use it for the glory of God and for the good of me and the people around him. That's what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, that you don't have to amputate parts of yourself um, that are good, that are glorious, that God wired into you. Uh, You don't have to leave those behind. You get to take those and keep them with you and enlist them into the cause. And and, um, it's going to go on to say this, um, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Anyone ever heard that verse before, ever seen it like on a mug or a hoodie or like been in a church service? Totally. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. You probably are all um, not expecting us to have a grammar lesson but we're gonna do a grammar lesson real quick right here in HSM. Your eyes flare like, oh no, not, not the grammar. Uh, don't worry, it's a simple one. I'm gonna walk you all through it. But it's important to understand what this text is saying. So you've got this. You've got do not conform. Uh, what does conform mean? Conform means I'm gonna fit myself into a shape that's not my natural shape right? Like if you conform, um, did you ever have like Play-Doh spaghetti factory when you were a kid or like play with Play-Doh and you'd like put it in like a mold, you know what I'm talking about? And it's like, you would take this thing and you would put it into a shape and you would press it into it. And what would it do? It would conform into the shape of that thing, right? And it, w- the reality is like, we do the same thing, right? Um, and so it's like, we, nobody's like judging anybody for that. Like it's a natural thing for us to do. Like you in your natural state is probably not who you are or who you have conformed into on your campus. And there are good ways that we conform and there are bad ways that we conform, right? Like sometimes we change things about us or edit things about us um, because of the environment, the context that we're in, right? Like if you have an interest, but the whole group of people that you're hanging out with think that interest is dumb, you're probably not going to offer that you're interested in that thing, right? You're probably going to be like, oh, I'm just going to pretend I don't like that thing anymore, right? Like we conform to fit, right? But what Paul is saying and what scripture is inviting us to is do not conform, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so grammar school goes like this. In a basic sentence, like the simplest sentence that you can have, you have three things, right? You have a subject, you have a verb, you have an object, right? Subject, verb, object. The subject is the thing that you're talking about, the verb is the action, and the object is the thing that's being actioned. So here, go with me here. I'm gonna use uh, Sophia as an example. Sophia, where are you at in the room? 
Sophia's right there. What's up, Sophia? So we're going to use the sentence, Sophia threw the ball, right? So imagine Sophia has a ball and she's throwing it across the room. Sophia would be the subject of the sentence, right? Like Sophia is the person we're talking about. The verb is through. What is Sophia doing? Sophia's throwing something. The object is the thing that Sophia's throwing, the ball, right? Sophia threw the ball. Subject, verb, object. Now, let's take that and let's apply it to this thing. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. So do not conform to the patterns of this world fits really easily into that structure. Subject, verb, object. Do not be conformed. So do. Sometimes where we don't uh, like explicitly say the subject, you have to fill it in uh, and it makes sense from the sentence. So really what we're saying when we say do not be conformed, like if I'm talking to Amory, Amory, if I say do not be conformed, what we all understand is that I'm talking to Amory, so Amory's the subject. I'm saying, Amory, do not be conformed. Or I'm saying like, you, do not be conformed. That's what we're saying. Like you are the subject of this sentence of what Paul is saying. You do not be conformed. And so conformed would be the verb, right? Like it's the thing that you're doing. Um, and then fun fact, the object is you again. Don't conform yourself, right? So it's you, do not conform you. Here's what he's saying. You have the power, you have the capability, you have the agency and the authority to conform yourself to whatever's going on around you. So he's saying, you do not conform you, right? Like that's not what we want for you. That's not good for you. Do not conform you to the pattern of this world. But it's going to change when we get to the next part of the sentence. And this is crucial. This is important for us to understand. And this hopefully will lift a weight off of our shoulders of what it looks like uh, moving forward. So he says, you do not conform you, but it says, but be transformed <coughs> by the renewing of your mind. Now, here's the reality. We have a verb and we have an object in this sentence, right? We have the action that's happening, transforming, and we have the thing that's being transformed, you and me, but the subject is not you. You don't get to transform yourself. It says, it doesn't say, but transform yourself. It says, be transformed, which means that we are the object of this and the object only. In other words, that we cannot transform ourselves. Transformation is something that happens to us, right? The, the subject of this sentence is not us, right? And sometimes we get into the headspace where it is my job to transform me. Right? And we get into the pressure of, it is my job to make me different. Now, there is a partnering that happens, but the subject of that part of the sentence is not you and me. It is God. Right? In view of God's mercy, do not conform, but be transformed, which means that God is the one who transforms us, and we are the ones who receive that transformation. We, uh, we let that transformation happen to us. Transformation and mind renewal is something that God does to you. It's not something that you do to yourself. You put yourself in position to receive that, right? It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Like as we spend time in God's word, as we spend time in worship, as we spend time listening to him, we receive the transformation, but it's not something that we do on our own. And I think sometimes we get into this headspace where it's like, I must transform harder, right? Like I'm just gonna white knuckle it until I'm something else. And has that ever worked for us? Maybe for a little bit, maybe in the short term, but not in the long term, <clears throat> And so the question is, how do we put ourselves in position to be transformed 
by God. And so I want to jump over to a separate thought, but it'll connect back. Um, any like nature people in the room? Any like survivalist people? Anybody like, I grew up watching Bear Grylls. You guys even know who Bear Grylls is? Bear Grylls is like, if you want to survive in the wild, you got to eat bugs, right? Like he's like crazy. He was always doing wild things and like drinking his own urine and like taking goat skins and making a wetsuit out of it and like nuts. I loved that stuff. I ate it up growing up. I was like, this is so cool. Um, but um, there's like a basic rule for survival, right? And so if you're ever like caught in the wild, remember this rule, it might save your life. Um, it's the rule of threes, right? There's actually four rules of three in survival. Here's the thing. The first rule of survival is this. You can go th about three minutes. The average person can go about three minutes without breathable air. Right now, like some people can train their lung capacity up a little higher. Like I think you get into world, world record status around like seven minutes, right? Like you can, you can really train, but there's a, there is a limit to that. Like you can't go on without oxygen. It is critical to you continuing to be a living person, right? Like if I was like, hold your breath, right? Like what, you, when you were a kid, were you ever in the pool and you're like, time me while I hold my breath, right? And you'd be like, <gasps> you go under and then you'd come up and be like, how long was it? And they were like eight seconds. You're like, oh, cool. Um, you can go about three minutes, the average person, without oxygen. And if you go longer than that, you will cease to breathe, right? You won't breathe again. Three minutes without breathable air. The next rule of survival is that you typically can go about three hours in a harsh environment without shelter. So we're talking like extreme heat or extreme cold, right? They say you can, your body can survive about three hours in a harsh environment before it just shuts down completely. <clears throat> the next thing is, you can go about three days without drinkable water. Um, have you ever like gotten the dehydration headache, right? Like this past summer I was at Universal Studios and there was just like nowhere to fill my water bottle. And by like 3 p.m. I had like a skull cracking headache and I wanted to throw, I actually did throw up. It was like so bad. And then it's like, just like getting a bottle of water and slamming it is like, it's too late for that, right? It's like, you're kind of laid out for the rest of the day. Anyone ever been like really dehydrated? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So you can go about three days without water and then your body will just like die completely. And the final rule of survival is that you can typically go about three weeks without food. Now I'm not encouraging anybody to test any of these. They will not do good things for your body. But that's the typical thinking on survival. You have these basic things that you need to keep yourself alive. You need oxygen, you need shelter, you need food, and you need water, right? There are basics to survival. Without those things, you cease to be, right? And so what I want to propose to you is what are, what's kind of the equivalent of that in the spiritual sense? Like what are the basics? What are the four things that you need for spiritual survival? That you need to know the heart of God to be transformed, um, to keep the momentum going, to continue forward? Like what should we prioritize in our lives? And here's the reality. These are not going to be like groundbreaking ideas to you. If I sat you down and I said, what do you guess are the things that are basic? In the same way where I, if I was like, what do you guess are the things your body needs to stay alive? You'd probably have like a general sense of it, but I want to refocus your attention on it because sometimes we think it's going to be something more ambiguous. Something out there is going to be the key that unlocks our thriving. And it's really the simple things. And so here's the four steps in spiritual survival that I want us all to remember. The first one is this, prayer. Think about prayer like you think about breathing, 
right? Like talking to God is important. And sometimes prayer is just like, I'm going to practice the presence of God and I don't need to be speaking. Like sometimes we get in this headspace where prayer is just like a monologue that we speak at God, right? It's like, I'll just talk at him and then I'm done praying, right? Like prayer is a conversation, right? And it takes a while to learn the voice of God, but prayer is a conversation. Ephesians 6 says this, it says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. So prayer is actually a critical part of having a healthy spiritual life, of making sure that your spiritual relationship with God is alive, is actually talking to God. And so whether that's, I'm going to carve out 20 minutes a day, I'm going to get up a little early, and I'm going to just talk about what's on my mind with God, or I'm going to ask people how I can pray for them, or I'm just going to sit and just be in God's presence and see if he brings anything to my attention that we need to address. Matthew chapter 7 says this in verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Like, haven't we done a bunch of stuff for you? And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, right? Like relationship is the most important part of the equation, right? Like prayer should be like breath. The Bible over and over says like, never stop praying, right? Like have designated specific times of prayer, but also like be conversational with the Lord. If something's funny, be like, that's funny, right? If something bothers you, be like, oh God, I really don't want to take this test, right? Like be in conversation, have the real conversation. Prayer is critical. Pray alone, pray with people. Prayer is the roadmap to spiritual survival. Here's the next one. Get in God's word. Read the Bible. Like, know, if you want to know him, if you want to know his nature, his qualities, his heart, you've got to get in God's word. You've got to know what he said. I want to give you actually a really interesting study. This is kind of like mind-blowing um, when you see this. Um, there's an organization called the Center for Bible Engagement, um, and they did a study uh, of 40,000 Americans, which is like actually like a huge sample in any sort of an academic study. Usually, like, tops, you're getting like 6,000 people were a part of this study. The Center for Bible Engagement um, did a study with 40,000 Americans uh, with people between the ages of 8 and 80. So kind of like, not just like five-year-old girls or like 29-year-old guys, right? Like it wasn't like a really, it was like just like people. It was just like, let's look at people and how people function. Um, and here's what they found. Uh, what they were looking at was how does time in the Bible affect their life? Like how much time they spend in the Bible, does it correlate to any changes in their life? And here's what they found is that um, one day in the Bible, there wasn't really like a noteworthy difference. And this is weekly, right? Like one day a week in the Bible, it was kind of like, yeah, that was nice. Like I got some feel good scripture, right? That's good. Um, two days in the Bible, kind of similar. It's kind of like negligible, at least in a data way. Um, three days, they noticed like a little like, whoop. <laughs> like if you're looking at a heart monitor, it was like, oh, that's making a little change. But then when they got to four days a week, what they found from 40,000 Americans, ages eight to 80, who were in God's word four times a week or more. Here's what they found. In those people, feelings of loneliness dropped 30%. That is a huge percentage. Feelings of loneliness down 30%. Anger issues dropped 32% for the people who were in God's word four times a week or more. Bitterness in relationships dropped 40% four times a week or more. Alcoholism dropped 57% in 
in the people who came to God's word at least four times a week. Their battle with alcohol decreased by 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant, like stalled out in your faith, no momentum, not moving forward, dropped 60% for people who just came to God's word and spent time in it at least four times a week. Viewing pornography decreased by 61%. Just like, like just their lim- them living life at, as normal, the only thing that they changed was that they were in God's word at least four times. They found that people viewed 61% less pornography. Not just that, they found certain things jumped too. That people's desire and, and boldness to share their faith jumped by 200%. And their, their decision, their willingness, their enthusiasm to disciple other people, to help other people in their faith journey, increased by 230%. Sometimes we come to God's word and we view it either as a homework assignment or just like a nice thing to cross off a list, but you forget that God's word is a living text, living and breathing, and it never comes back without accomplishing a purpose. And so you need to know that God's word is a powerful tool in your life to bless your life, to help you know the heart of God, to free you from bondage and to bring you into hope and joy. And so if you are not reading God's word, then you're not getting access to all the benefit of God's word. If you want to spiritually survive and stay alive and thrive, prioritize time in God's word. I'm gonna invite the band up um, to start setting up. The next step in spiritual survival is this. Be rooted in community. Be in community. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25 says this. It says, and let us consider how we can spur one another on towards a couple things. It says towards love, towards good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some people are in the habit of doing, like not deprioritizing community, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching, right? Like being in community, it's, we're not well off when we are in isolation, right? Like if you look at any study about people in like solitary confinement, um, especially in like sensory deprivation and solitary confinement, people go insane very quickly. Like we are social creatures by design. It's clear as day in the text that we are meant to be in community. One of the first observations of anything wrong in the world uh, or anything um, not optimal in the world is God looking at the man that he created and saying, it's not good that he be alone, right? You aren't meant to be alone and your faith will not thrive if your faith is a journey that you take alone. And sometimes we're like, yeah, I'm good. I'll pray. I'll read the Bible, but like church isn't really for me. Maybe I'll just like show up, not talk to anybody. And like, maybe like I was a shy person growing up. Like I was the guy like, let me sit in the back and then leave. Right. Uh, But I I just want to push back on that a little bit and say, you're leaving so much blessing on the table, but not taking up community. And that doesn't mean that you have to become like life of the party, like up front with a microphone, getting rowdy right? But community will bless your life. And so whether that looks like being brave on a Sunday and meeting somebody, bringing a friend to church with you, getting into a small group, um, I want to invite you to be a part of our family. Um, If you don't have community, even if you've been here for a long time, um, but you just kind of come on Sundays and then you leave, um, life's too hard to do on your own. Um, and you were never meant to do it alone. Uh, And if you want your soul to be thriving, if you want your spiritual life to be vibrant um, and alive, you need community. And the final thing that I wanna put on your radar today for spiritual survival is this. 
actually sharing the gospel. Like if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've received salvation, remember Romans, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you're saved. But also in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives a final command before he goes back to the Father and he says this, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? And so there's this thing, notice what he says. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to other people and share with them what I've shared with you. I want you to teach them what I've taught you. And now teaching and telling are different things, right? We're not clobbering people over the head. Like, here's what you must be, right? Like teaching is different than telling because telling is top down and impersonal. But teaching is I'm gonna come alongside you. I'm gonna walk through this with you. I'm gonna make sure you understand this. I'm gonna show you what it looks like. I'm gonna help you do it for yourself. I'm then going to watch while you do it for yourself. Or like teaching is an intimate process. But Jesus, there's a promise buried in here. He says this. He says, do all of these things, like share the gospel. And when you do that, you can be sure of this, that I will be with you always, that you'll experience my presence, that you'll see my activity in the world. And so my question for you is, if your faith feels stale or if you're questioning where God is, if he seems far off or you feel like you're not having access to the power of God or seeing transformation, I would ask, are you committed to the business of sharing the gospel, right? Are you partnering with God as he tries to bring his love to other people? Because the promise is there. He says, when you do that, you'll experience me. You'll experience my nearness like you never knew. And so that's there for you. That's alive and for you on the table. And so if we want to be a community that thrives, if we want to be a community that knows the heart of God, a community that can walk in newness, we need to commit ourselves to prayer, to God's word, to community, and to the gospel. And that's where we're going in 2024. That's what we're going to be about. And we hope that you are along for the ride because we want to be a ministry. We want to be a group that is alive and well in our hearts, in our spirits, and in our minds. And so that's my prayer for you. Um, and that's what we're going to ask of God right now. And then we're going to turn to him in worship. So would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father God, we don't want to be uh, creatures that are living a half-life spiritually. Um, God, we want your best for us. We're hungry for it. We want to know the real thing. We want real encounter. We want to know you. Um, and so God, I pray um, that you would make all of those four things um, sweet to us, uh, desirable to us. God, that we would have a hunger for the moment where we can get away from everything and talk with you. God, that we would love prayer. Um, God, that we would have a hunger to dive into your word because when we open it, you unlock its secrets to us. God, that you show us the power that's in the text, that we not only read it, but it reads us back and you reveal things about ourselves to us that we couldn't see without it. God, we pray that we would have a desire for it. God, we pray that as we come to community, uh, that when we're brave <coughs> to reach out to people, to partner with people, God, that that would always bring blessing to us. And God, we pray that you would bless this community, that you would bring more to this community who are doing it alone, um, that need to not be doing it alone. God, we pray that we would be watchful for the people that we need to invite in. And God, on that note, we pray that we would have a heart that loves the gospel. God, my prayer for this whole past year and going into this year has been, would you give us a love for the gospel? And would you make each of us good at sharing the gospel? And sometimes we're daunted of like, I don't know if I'll say the right thing or I don't want to say it wrong. But God, would you be the one who makes us passionate about your gospel to the point that we're good at telling people about it? And God, as we commit ourselves to those four things, would we watch and see the wonders that you're going to do in this community. 
Lord, we love you. Uh, and so we turn our hearts to you. We posture them towards you in worship right now. And we pray that you would meet us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that was a blessing to you. You can connect with us on social media at Calvary HSM 805 on Instagram or on our website. God bless you.